0: Are you looking for a word from God today? If so, First Baptist Dallas is glad to present this dynamic message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. Dr. Jeffers is a premier Bible teacher, pastor, and author whose practical applications of God's truth help guide and encourage those who seek to know and follow the Lord Jesus. I know you'll be blessed. And now, the message by Dr. Robert Jeffers. I am probably the only preacher in America who gets misty-eyed when I preach about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> now, the cause of my sentimentality has nothing to do with the story itself, but the first time I ever preached through that passage represented a milestone, a turning point in my ministry. People often ask me, "Uh, Pastor, have you always spoken out in the public square against things like abortion and homosexuality and transgenderism? And the answer is no, I haven't always done that. In fact, for the first 15 years of my preaching ministry, I preached through the Bible book by book, and if a passage dealt with a controversial subject, I might say a word about it. But only in the pulpit. I never took any public stands against uh, those things. But that all changed on a Thursday in May of 1998. I was preaching through the book of Genesis, and I had come to the passage we're going to look at today, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I'd worked through the sermon, and I uh, was finished with it on Thursday, and one of the outline points, the principles I had put on the outline was this, no nation can afford to condone what God has condemned. And interestingly, that very same day, a member of our church had dropped by our office and had delivered to my desk two children's books that were written to promote homosexuality among children. One was called, Heather Has Two Mommies. It's about a little girl adopted by two lesbians. And the other book was, Daddy's Roommate. It's told from the perspective of a little boy who explains to the reading audience how his father recently divorced his mother and took in a new roommate named Frank. And his mother explained to him that his daddy and Frank had a different kind of love. And the boy explains, and it's illustrated in this book, what daddy and his new roommate, Frank, do together. What do they do together? Well, they shave together, they eat together, they play together, and then there's a picture, they sleep together. And uh, the person who dropped off the books uh, to our office said, the pastor, what are you going to do about these books? And I thought to myself, what do you mean, what am I going to do? I'm not the librarian. I'm the pastor of the local church. But then I remembered I was about to preach that point in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. No nation can condone what God has condemned. So I thought, well, I've got to do something, make some kind of gesture. So I thought I'd take care of it easily on the way home that afternoon. I called the librarian, the head librarian. And I said, I'm sure you're not aware that these books are in our library. But given the fact that, first of all, sodomy is against the law in the state of Texas, which it was at that time, given the fact that homosexuality violates the teachings of the three major world religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, And given the fact that homosexual practices are not exclusively, but largely responsible for the greatest epidemic in American history at that time, AIDS, I'm sure you'll remove those books from the children's section of the library. And she said, not on your life. (laughs) I couldn't believe the response. So the next Sunday, I was in the pulpit, and I explained what the passage said that we're going to look at, and I got to that point We can't condone what God has condemned. And I explained about these two books. And I said, and I hadn't planned to say it. I don't know what got into me to say it. But I looked in the television lens. Uh, We broadcast live in those days in our town. And I said, I want to say a word to the city council. I don't want to put you in a difficult spot. So I'm not going to make you choose and vote whether or not to allow these books in the library. I have these books in my hands and I'm not giving them back. (laughs) Well, you won't believe the reaction. The local newspaper wrote an editorial a couple of days later and said I needed to be put in jail for civil disobedience. They said Martin Luther King uh, Jr. did some of his best work in jail and Pastor Jeffers maybe can do some of his best work (laughs) Letters from the Wichita Falls Jail. Uh, The ACLU threatened to uh, sue our city, and in fact, did sue our city over the issue. Our tax exempt status was threatened. It received national attention. Rush Limbaugh, The Washington Post, NBC News covered the story. Even PBS sent a crew from New York and they did an entire documentary on this controversy in a West Texas town that divided the town over homosexuality. You know, people have asked me, if you had it to do over again, would you preach that sermon? Would you do what you did? I say, absolutely, but, I would add one point. While this passage we're about to look at is one of the clearest denunciations of homosexuality found in the scripture, there's an even deeper sin that is at issue here. And that is rebellion against God. Rebellion against God takes many forms. It's expressed in many different sins. But the principle is true. God is patient, and I want you to hear that today. He is loving. There is no sin beyond God's forgiveness. God is patient. God is loving. He is forgiving if we ask, but there comes a time when God draws a line in the sand and says, enough. There is a time when the patience of God runs out, and that's what we're going to look at today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 18, as we discover what happens when God's patience runs out. Now, remember where we are in the study of Abraham? Abraham had that relationship with his handmaid, Hagar, to fulfill God's promise. He thought. She gave birth to Ishmael when Abraham was 86 years old. God said, "Not that's in the way we're gonna do it. But then God is silent for 13 years until Abraham was 99 and his wife Sarah was 89. God comes back to him after 13 years of silence and says, I'm gonna keep my promise, Abraham. I'm gonna give you and Sarah a son, the son of promise, Isaac. Now, maybe a few days after that reassurance, God sends reassurance in the form of three angels who come to visit Abraham. Look at verse one of chapter 18 of Genesis. Now the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. And when he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, my Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, please don't pass your servant by. These three appearing to be men were actually angels. Two of them were angels, like we think of angels, but one was a special angel, the angel of the Lord. When you read that in the Bible, that is always a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, God in human form, the angel of the Lord. How do I know that one of these three angels was the Lord himself? Look at verse one, the Lord appeared to Abraham along with two others. It's interesting in the Bible, whenever angels appear, they take on the form of a male. Have you ever wondered why that is? Why there aren't any female angels? Why do they always take the form of a male? It came to me, you know, if an angel wanted to disguise himself, what better? costumes to put on than the image of a man. Nobody would mistake a man for an angel. So maybe that's why, I don't know for sure, but that could be what's at work here. But we know one of these was the Lord, because later on, the other two angels go to Sodom, while the Lord stays to talk to Abraham. So they appear to Abraham, and they engage in a conversation. One of them says, Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, that should have to Abraham that this is something unusual. He hadn't mentioned his wife, Sarah. How did they know he had a wife named Sarah? And so one of the angels says, now this time next year, we're gonna return and you're gonna have a son. You're gonna have the son of promise, Isaac, you and Sarah. And Sarah is now overhearing this conversation. She laughs inwardly and she says, should a woman at my age have pleasure and have a child and attend PTA meetings? It's preposterous. Nobody would expect that to happen. (laughs) The angel said, why did you laugh, Sarah? Oh, I didn't laugh. Oh, but you did laugh. Now, this was good news from the angels, but the angels don't always deliver good news. They also had some bad news to deliver. Look at verse 16. Then the men rose up from there and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. And the Lord, there's Jesus, said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Isn't that interesting that Abraham and the Lord had such an intimate relationship that the Lord felt an obligation to share with his friend Abraham what he was about to do? Wouldn't you like to have that kind of close relationship with God? A relationship with God so intimate that God would feel obliged to tell you what he was about to do? He told Abraham what was going to happen. Look at verse 20. The Lord said, the outcry, now underline that word, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. That word outcry is also used in Genesis four about the first murder ever committed when Cain killed his brother Abel. Genesis four said, The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. There are some sins, the Bible says, that are so horrible in God's sight that they cry out for God to do something, to render justice for that injustice. I think we see those sins today that cry out for God's judgment, the abuse of little children, or heinous murders, that can't be even described like the ones we're reading about in Idaho. Or the blasphemy of God's name in the public square. These sins cry out for God's judgment. What were the sins of Sodom Sodom and their city, Gomorrah, and the other cities of the Plains area? What were the sins that cried out for God's judgment? We would be wrong, and people are wrong, to limit that to homosexuality. That's not the only sin. You look at passages like Ezekiel 16, 49, Jeremiah 23, 14, Jude 7, 2 Peter 2, 7, you'll see the sins of Sodom listed as materialism, lawlessness, and yes, sexual immorality, and specifically homosexuality but all those sins cried out for God's judgment. Verse 21, so the Lord said, I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me. And if not, I will know. Now, if God is all knowing omniscient, why did he have to go visit Sodom to see if all of these sins were full and running over like had been reported to him? Did God not know of course not. God knew everything. This is in scripture, what we call an anthropomorphism. It is an ex- it is a description of God in human terms so that we can understand the eternal qualities of God. God is a just God. He doesn't do anything without reason. That's all that's being said here. And the question is, is it time for judgment? Has it reached that point where injustice and sin is full and running over? This reminds me of that passage in Revelation 14 and 18, right before the final judgment that comes on the world at the end. Remember, one angel cries to the other and says, put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth because her grapes are ripe. The angels were comparing the evil in the world to grapes that were fully ripened. They were about to burst, not with juice, but with evil. These were truly grapes of God's wrath. Well, that's what the angel was saying here, the Lord, I'm going to go down and see if it's time to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. How did Abraham react to that news that God was going to destroy these evil cities Did he say, that's right, Lord, let these sinners have it. Especially those sodomites. I hate those sodomites. What they do is gross. It's wrong. Let them have it, Lord. Is that what Abraham did? No. Instead, he responds with the first intercessory prayer in all of the Bible, in which somebody prayed for somebody else. He tries to stave off God's judgment through his dialogue with God. He said, God, before you rain down fire and brimstone, let me ask you a question. If there are 50 righteous people in these five cities, the cities of the plain, if there are 50 righteous people, will you hold back your judgment? The Lord said, yes. Then Abraham thought, mm, what about 45? What if I can find 45? Yes. What about 30? Yes. What about 20? Yes. What about 10? Will you spare the city? And then he makes his case. Abraham in verse 25 said, For far be it from you, Lord, to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. It would be wrong for you, Lord, to destroy the city, even if there were 10 righteous people. And then Abraham adds, For shall not the judge of all the earth deal with? justly. Underline that verse. It is a key verse about the goodness and the justice of God. Have you ever had people ask you the question, how can God send people to hell who have never heard the gospel before? Or what about little babies and mentally challenged people? And they come up with all of these questions. It doesn't seem right. How could God do such a thing? Here's a great verse to quote back. You can say, I don't have the answer I don't understand, but I know this. The judge of the earth will do that which is right. You can always count on God to do the right thing. Apparently, there weren't even 10 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah. So the two angels go down to Sodom to judge the city. Now, look at their encounter with the residents of Sodom, beginning with verse one of chapter 19. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. What does that mean? The gate is where people came for justice. This is telling us that by this time, Lot had become a judge in the city. And so these visitors come to Lot. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Perhaps he sensed there was something different about these visitors. And he offers them a place to stay. Come and stay, spend the night at our house. They say, oh no, we don't want to trouble you. We'll just stay outside, sleep on the streets. And Lot said, not in this city you won't and live to tell about it. You better come into my house. The crime rate is through the roof. And so they acquiesce and they stay with Lot and his family. Now look at this, verse four. Before they lay down that night, the men of the city of Sodom, the men of Sodom surrounded the house, both young and old, all the people from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to him, where are those men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. Now, that's the PG sanitized version. What they were really saying was, bring these men out so that we might rape them, so that we might sexually assault them. So perverse had the city of Sodom become that when the residents of Sodom saw two new faces, fresh faces, their first thought was, let's sexually assault these people. It was unbelievable. Now, I said earlier, homosexuality isn't the only sin that God condemns and judges, but make no mistake about it, even though there were other sins, this is the sin that brought God's ultimate judgment. The Bible clearly teaches in both the Old and New Testaments that homosexuality is an abomination to God. You find it in the Old Testament, Leviticus 18, verses 22 and 29, other passages. By the way, maybe you've been asked this question. Had people ever asked you, oh, you conservative Christians, why do you pick and choose which verses you're going to obey and which verses you aren't? Well, there are all kinds of things you're not supposed to do in the Old Testament. You're not supposed to wear a coat that is made of two kinds of fabric. There are certain kinds of bread and seeds you're not to eat or consume or plant in the ground. Why do you just pick on the sin of homosexuality? Why don't you follow those other regulations? Well, it's real simple. The reason we select homosexuality is because it's repeated in the New Testament as well. The only parts of the Old Testament that we obey today are those parts that are in the New Testament. There's nothing in the New Testament about not wearing material of two different fabrics. There's no restrictions about what kind of seed you sow. Those were Old Commandments. That's why it's called the Old Testament. We live under the New Testament. And make no mistake about it, the New Testament has many prohibitions against homosexuality. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9, 1 Timothy 1 verse 10. Have you ever heard people say, well, Jesus didn't say anything about homosexuality? Of course he did. In Matthew 19, He said, here's God's plan for sex. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, God made them male and female, and the two shall become one flesh. He said, here's God's standard and it's for your good. I thought up sex, here's the way it operates. It's best used between a man and a woman in the security of a marriage relationship. And by saying, here's God's standard, Jesus is saying any deviation from that standard is wrong. This is the perfect standard. Jesus never talked about bestiality either, but he didn't have to. It's a deviation from God's standard. He never mentioned pedophilia. He didn't have to. It's a deviation from God's standard. It's a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. That's how he designed sex. By the way, the clearest denunciation in the New Testament is found in Romans 1, verses 26 to 27. Now, some of you listening aren't gonna like this, but this is the word of the Lord if you believe all scripture is inspired. Listen to verse 26 of Romans 1. For this reason, God gave them, who? People who have rejected the truth of God. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Underline that. And in the same way, also men abandoned their natural function with the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. What are those due penalties that people who practice homosexuality receive? Some people think what's talking about a physical penalty, certain kinds of illnesses. Maybe it's AIDS that Paul has in mind here. Now, it's true that AIDS is not exclusively reserved for the homosexuality, homosexual community, but it is primarily a homosexual disease. According to the Center for Disease Control, men who have sex with men have an HIV prevalence 60 times higher than the rest of the general population. Matt Foreman, who served as the executive director for the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, said at a homosexual rally, quote, With 70% of people living in this country with HIV being homosexual or bisexual, we cannot deny that HIV is a gay disease. Now, that's a gay activist himself admitting. He's not saying that 70% of homosexuals have AIDS, he's saying that 70% of those who have AIDS are homosexual or bisexual. Indeed, by one estimate, 80% of the serious sexually transmitted diseases in this country occur in the homosexual population. Why is there such a high incidence of disease and sickness among homosexuals? It's very simple. Because what they do is, the Bible says, unnatural. That word, un, is a prefix that means against. What homosexuals do goes against nature. And perhaps that's what Paul says, there are physical consequences. But I think he may have something else in mind here as well. There are not only spiritual consequences, there are physical consequences, there are spiritual consequences as well. Listen to this, Paul is saying that homosexuality is not only the cause of God's judgment, In some cases, it is the result of God's judgment. Look at verse 24 of Romans 1. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. God gave them over because they rejected the knowledge of the true God. Part of their judgment was God let them go. He let them follow their own desires that resulted in this degradation. Now, I'm going to keep saying this for everybody listening. Homosexuality is a grave sin, just as adultery and unbiblical divorce and greed and injustice. All sin is sin, and there is no sin, including homosexuality, that is beyond the forgiveness of God. Every sin can be forgiven. But before you can receive God's forgiveness, you have to admit that you need God's forgiveness. Can homosexuals be forgiven? Can adulterers be forgiven? Of course they can. But to receive God's forgiveness, they first have to admit that what they're doing is wrong and that they need God's forgiveness. Anybody can be forgiven for anything. What happened here? Lot horrified that they want to assault these two visitors, offers them an alternative. And this just blows my mind. Lot says, don't rape these two men. Instead, I have two daughters. Take them and rape them if you would like to, but just don't rape these men. Can you imagine any father doing that with his daughters? That shows you how perverse Lot had become after living in a perverse city for so long. That immorality had definitely rubbed off on him. You know what they said? They said, we don't want your daughters. We want these two men, and in fact, we want you too. We wanna rape you as well. At this point, the angels had had enough. Verse 11, they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. Talk about being touched by an angel. They got the wrong kind of touch from the angel. But that wasn't the limit of God's destruction. They delivered this warning to Lot. Look at verse 12 and 13. The two men said to Lot, "'Whom else have you here?' A son in law and your sons and your daughters and whomever else you have in this city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because of their outcry has become so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. The angels announced what they were about to do. How did Lot's family respond? They scoffed at the idea, they laughed at the idea of God's judgment. That's the way unbelievers today respond. Remember what happened in the days of Noah? For over a hundred years, Noah preached that a flood was coming and the people scoffed at Noah. In the last days before Jesus returned, 2 Peter 3, 3 says, know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers, scoffers, will come with their mocking saying, where is the promise of his coming? Oh, you've been talking about this Jesus coming back for 2,000 years. He's not here yet. He's not coming back. What they don't realize, Peter says, is, is one day with the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. And what happened here is very, very descriptive. Verse 16 says that when Lot heard that, he hesitated. When he heard Sodom was going to be destroyed, he hesitated in fleeing Sodom and he made a deal, or tried to with the angels, said, angels, I'll get out of Sodom, but can't I live close by, just in a neighboring town? I still have a taste for Sodom in my life. I still am tantalized by the sin here. Can't I stay just close to sin without actually being in sin? He's like so many Christians today. They claim they want a new life in Jesus Christ, but there's some private sin in their life, some habit, some addiction, some relationship. Lord, surely you don't mind this little thing in my heart that I hang on to myself. It gives me such happiness. And Lord, you want me to be happy, don't you? No, no. That's the sign of a fleshly, a carnal believer. And so even though he hesitated. Verse 16 says, the angels seized his hand and the hand of his wife and the hands of his daughters for the compassion of the Lord was upon him. And they brought him out and put him outside of the city. Look now at verse 24. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. This is the first mention of fire in the Bible. And it's related to God's judgment, fire and brimstone. And he overthrew those cities and all the valleys and all the inhabitants of the cities, what grew on the ground. You know, a lot of people speculate how this city, all five of them were destroyed. Some people speculate there may have been a volcanic eruption or perhaps an earthquake that released certain hydrocarbons into the air and lightning came at the right time and caused a, Uh, combustion and an explosion and fire and brimstone rained down. There's some archaeological evidence from that area that that actually happened. But Moses really doesn't tell us the how of it happening, but he tells us who. This was not nature, mother nature. This was God himself pouring down his promised judgment Look at verse 27. Now Abraham rose early in the morning and went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he saw and behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. He could see the smoke still rising to the air. When I read that passage, I think about what happened in our country on 9-11 Remembering how just an hour's time those planes struck the World Trade Center, the tallest buildings in the world, and reduced them to rabble rabble in an hour's time? It was a sudden um, destruction of that city, New York City. Weeks after that, just a matter of weeks after that happened, our family was on a plane landing at LaGuardia Airport in New York. It was at nighttime. And we could look out the window and see giant searchlights where the World Trade Center had been and that huge hole in the ground. And we could still see the smoke and debris, the dust rising into the air. That's what the end times are going to be like, by the way. Revelation 18, we read about the destruction of the great center of commerce in the world, the city that will be known as Babylon. And in an hour... That city is completely destroyed and the people of the world lament, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. What does the story of God's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah have to say to us today? I think this passage is always relevant, but it's especially relevant for us in our country right now. Let me close today with three timeless principles from this story. First one is about sin's influence. Write this down. Bad company corrupts good morals. Bad company corrupts good morals. Make no mistake about it, Lot was a believer. The Bible refers to him consistently as that righteous man, Lot. He was a believer, but he was an immature believer. He was a fleshly believer. And because he was immature as a believer, he was easily influenced by others. And you see him pulled into sin over a period of time. In Genesis 13, we see him living on the outskirts of the city of Sodom. When we get to verse 14, he's now living in the city of Sodom. And by the time we get to chapter 19, we find him as a judge in the city of Sodom. He gets more and more involved in Sodom. You know, Psalm 1 says, Blessed happier those who do not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, who do not stand in the path of sinners, who do not sit in the seat of the scoffer, and yet blot did all three. And he became more like the sodomites instead of the sodomites becoming more like righteous Lot. You know, Chuck Swindoll has a great illustration of this. He says, imagine it's raining cats and dogs outside and you decide still to go work in your flower bed and you put on white gloves to work in the mud. What happens to those white gloves? Real simple, they become muddy Every time, they will become muddy. But never in a thousand years will the mud become glovy. <laughs> oh, no, the mud impacts the glove. The glove doesn't impact the mud. And it's the same with people today, and ungodly people. You hang around an immoral person long enough, and guess what? You begin to think and act immorally. Hang around an angry person, Proverbs says you'll become more angry. Hang around somebody who scoffs and mocks at the things of God and you'll become a mocker and a scoffer. 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. And that leads to a second truth about a Christian's responsibility. God does want us to impact our culture and this principle is this. Believers are to act as preservatives in a corrupt world. One reason God left us here on earth is to push back against evil. Not that we're gonna ultimately win, This world is ultimately going to implode. God's gonna judge it, the Lord's gonna return. But we are to be a preserving influence to push back against evil so that people have longer to hear the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 2 says, there is a restrainer of evil in the world today. Who is that restrainer? He's the Holy Spirit of God. And where is the Holy Spirit of God? He's in the lives of believers. The Holy Spirit through your life and my life acts as a preservative in a corrupt world, to give the world longer to hear the gospel. And that's why it's so important that Christians take public stands against sin. We take public stands against abortion, against injustice, against immorality of every kind. Not that we're gonna save the world by doing that, but hopefully we can give the world a little longer to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be transformed inwardly. The third truth here, and this is so important, has to do with God's patience. God eventually says, enough. God's patience eventually runs out. You know, there's a fascinating verse to me in Ecclesiastes eight eleven. Solomon said, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed immediately, The sons of men are fully to give that which is evil. In other words, what Solomon is saying is because people don't get struck down immediately when they sin, people make the mistake of confusing God's tolerance with God's mercy. God is long-suffering, but there's a time when God says enough. Don't make the mistake of confusing God's mercy, God's patience, with God's tolerance for sin. Just because consequences don't come immediately doesn't mean they won't come ultimately. We need to hear this as a nation, first of all. You know, when God was talking to Israel, he used the example of Sodom uh, for them to consider. Listen to Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, abundant food, careless ease, but she did not help the poor and needy. That's interesting, isn't it? She didn't help the poor and the needy. Thus they were haughty and committed abominations before me. Therefore, I removed them when I saw it. Isn't that a great description of America today? Arrogant, prideful. We've got the greatest military in the world. We've got the greatest economy in the world. We can do whatever we want to. America's number one, arrogance. We don't realize that in a moment, in an instance, God's judgment can come. Just because it hasn't come for 250 years, the history of our country doesn't mean it's not coming. Don't confuse God's mercy with God's tolerance for sin. America is going to collapse one day. I don't care what any political party tells you, it is going to collapse. I'm gonna preach a sermon later this year on why America is not in Bible prophecy. You wanna hear the short version of the sermon? Because we're not gonna be there in the final seven years. We're not going to exist. That doesn't mean we just give up. We ought to push back. We ought to pray for revival. But America is going to collapse. I don't know how the collapse is gonna come. It may come from an external invasion from Russia or China. It may be a terrorist attack. It could be a, a rot from the inside. It could be a pandemic. It could be a financial catastrophe It could be just a complete breakdown of our government. Hadn't we seen in the last few days how that could happen really easily? But it is coming. Like Ruth Graham, the wife of the late evangelist Billy Graham, said, if God doesn't judge America, he's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. What applies to nations apply to our lives as well. Don't confuse God's mercy in your life with God's tolerance for sin. Don't think because you haven't experienced severe consequences yet, you won't experience them at all. If you're living in rebellion against God right now, if you've not asked for his forgiveness, there's only one reason you haven't experienced those consequences. God's giving you another chance, perhaps the last chance to receive his forgiveness. God said to Ezekiel in Ezekiel thirty-three, eleven: as I live, says the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but I desire that the wicked turn from his wickedness and live. Turn, turn from your wickedness, for why will you die? It doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what sins you have committed, no sin is beyond the forgiveness of God. And that's what the love and forgiveness of Jesus Christ are all about. Turn, turn from your wickedness. On behalf of Dr. Robert Jeffress and everyone at First Baptist Dallas, thank you for joining us today. Our hope and prayer is that the biblical truth of this message will continue to be a blessing to you as you apply it to your life. For more information about First Baptist Dallas, we invite you to visit our website, firstdallas.org. May God bless you richly today.